It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by, check us out, kick the tires, light the fires, um, and other cliches that I can't think of right now. Um, There is now a moth. Or some sort of hideous bug creature in my office. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Oh, I wasn't saying anything yet. Um, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And um, we were thinking about doing a drive time show. And we thought that the jocularity of that was inappropriate for a 9-11 thing. But I'm also not going to get, or at least I'm going to try not to get too maudlin about all of this. I think everybody has you know, had 20 years to process a lot of this. And, um, uh, but you know, it's, it's a really difficult thing to explain to people who weren't around back then. And, um, I remember I wrote a column, I think, I think it was on nine 11, just called, where were you when? Because I knew that for the rest of our lives, people were going to ask that kind of question of where were you when this happened? And, um, I talked a little bit about this on the dispatch pod and in my column earlier this week, but, uh, I was in Pendleton, Oregon. Um, I got up super early because I was on the, about to launch the first full day of driving Cosmo, the wonder dog, um, back home. Uh, my wife and I got married in the San Juan islands in, uh, the Pacific Northwest in Washington state. And, uh, we got back from our honeymoon on September 10. And, uh, my wife went, flew straight to Washington to start her new job as John Ashcroft's chief speechwriter. Um, and I had to go and get Cosmo who we had left with my sister-in-law, Alex, um, and drive him back. And I'd driven out. So my car was there too, but you know, the, the mission was for Cosmo and, um, and, I actually, my wife still makes fun of me. I drove too far south when I ended up in Pendleton. Um, I should have gotten 80 instead of aimed for 70 or something. I can't remember now. But anyway, Pendleton is not really the, as the crow flies stop if you're driving back to Washington, D.C. But it's a cool town. I was glad I was there. And um, so I was up crazy early because I needed to write a column or at least get started on a column before I I, I started the drive. And so Kazi and I are, sitting in the same bed in the hotel. And, um, I watched like all of this unfold. I was like, I was channel surfing basically for column topics. And, um, uh, and as I mentioned on the dispatch pod, I was watching, it's going back and forth between like the CBS morning show, which had Brian Gumbel on at the time. And it had, and the Fox and friends show where, uh, they had this reporter on to talk about his new book about the Bush v. Gore decision. And the host says in the middle of it, um, Hey, I'm sorry, but we're really going to have to cover this, this story about this, this small plane that hit the world trade center. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. Um, and like, you know, if that guy gave another book interview for three years, I'd be surprised. Um, and it was sort of similar for me. It was like everything, career-wise kind of changed all of a sudden. I am um, so I was watching on CBS listening to Brian Gumbel question somebody. At this point they knew that it was like a passenger plane and Brian Gumbel was being just a, I'm not a big Brian Gumbel fan, but he was being justifiably skeptical 
of someone who was just saying, this is terror, this is international terrorism, or this is terrorism. And he was like, well, why would you say that? How do you know that yet? And the guy was in the middle of explaining how, like, it's very difficult to see how one of these big passenger commercial planes could be off this far off route unintentionally um, and or something like that. And as he's explaining this, they have just sort of the steady cam shot of the hole in the side of the first tower with it burning. And as he's explaining all of this in real time, I saw the second plane hit the other tower and all of a sudden it was like, okay, definitely terrorism. And, um, and so again, it was like four or five in the morning at, at West coast time. And I was, I got on AOL instant messenger and I was the one who told rich Lowry, turn on your TV. I remember, uh, uh, chatting with, a. Uh, Catherine Lopez, also at National Review, saying, you know, oh, my God, this is real. It was just kind of weird to be telling the people in New York um, who are really close to all this stuff. um, Here's what's going on in New York. (laughs) Um, At one point, I finally had to walk Kaz and I go downstairs and it was really, you know, amazing. It was like the little breakfast area and this, you know, perfectly fine, but, you know, not fancy, you know, best Western kind of hotel. Um there are a bunch of like flight attendant types who, you know, were staying there for the night, other business people, travelers, families, they were all clustered around the little TV down in the breakfast room watching the news. And it had a real battle of the blitz kind of feel to it, you know, that, you know, instead of a radio, everyone is gathered around the TV. And, um, so I had my, um, headphones, um, and my, I guess I had a Walkman back then or some variation of that. And I was actually listening to the NPR coverage on my, on my headphones and I was walking cars out by the rodeo grounds and, um, all of a sudden it was weird. All of a sudden the, the, the NPR broadcast got a lot louder in my head and I was like, huh, you know, and I was like, I didn't touch the volume. What was going on? I take off my headphones for a second just to sort of figure out what's going on. And, um, the rodeo stadium uh, had patched in the NPR feed to their external loudspeakers and were blasting it, um, you know, both internally and externally to like the parking lots and the fields behind and all that kind of stuff. And I still, to this day, think it must've been the first and last time that a rodeo, um, uh, blasted NPR's morning edition, um, without any complaint from anybody, at least, um, I don't have fantastic stories of heroism or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, my, uh, except possible exception of my brother who very early in nine 11 first went down there before it became super organized, went down there just to sort of see how things were and, or what was going on. And, uh, somebody asked for somebody who can, who had the right class license to, um, uh, drive a bus. And, um, my brother said he did cause he, he had a commercial class C, I don't know what it were, whatever, whatever those things are called license. Cause for a while he, um, he had a bunch of jobs where he was a driver. He drove a fish delivery truck, um, uh, out of Fulton fish market. He, um, r- drove a tow truck or some people call a wrecker, whatever you call those things, um, in the Bronx. And so he could, he had the license to drive those things. And so he ended up just sort of volunteering for, um, duty of driving body bags back to the makeshift morgue and all that kind of stuff. And it was really grim, but he was really glad to have done it. And, um, but the whole thing was just super weird for me for want of a more poetic term, because here I am stuck on the other end of the country and my wife, you know, I got her on the phone We've literally been married for two and a half weeks and, um, you know, I, I get her, it was very hard to get calls through on that day for obvious reasons. I kept calling, um, my parents, you know, both of them were still in the city back then and couldn't get through. I called my, um, um, and I tried to call my wife and finally got through to her. And before we could really even talk much, she was um, being evacuated from the building because one of the things that freaked out Washington back then, again, I wasn't there, but obviously I knew quite a few people who were, um, was that the F-16s were now f- 
flying back and forth all over um, the city. And the I don't know if there were full-on sonic booms, but the sounds of them, a lot of people thought they were bombs. And so they thought there were bombs going off across the city when the, obviously there, in fact, weren't. And people were just sort of freaking out. And, and so she got evacuated. Um, and it took a while to hear from her again, but at least it was good to hear from her. And um, the whole day was just kind of um, crazy for me. And then I, I, at some point, I just had to get on the road and start driving. And um, um, and I remember listening to the radios. I don't think we had serious radio back then. So I was just listening to, again, like NPR or whatever news I could find. And I remember just like openly crying behind the wheel when I listened to the members of Congress singing um, national anthem on the steps of Congress. And, uh, um, it was just a super, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not telling anybody who was alive back then, anything they don't know, but it was a wildly emotional, powerful time. And I will say I was all in on the anger. Um, one of the first things I wrote after nine 11 was that we needed to rebuild the world trade center taller and bigger and, um, name one tower freedom and the other tower unity and then let our enemies figure out what the initials stood for um and i still kind of believe in that that vision of america that we just don't you know um you know i'm I'm still a uh millions for defense not one penny for tribute kind of guy which is one of the reasons why this afghanistan thing so disgusts me um particularly that it's um transpiring on the 20th anniversary and it it does i mean Look, I mean, I'm not going to belabor the Afghanistan stuff again. Um, I've written a lot about it. I've talked a lot about it. But, you know, when you hear Joe Biden constantly talk about how, you know, he had no choice. This was inevitable. This was the best way to do it. Um, all these sort of contradictory or half contradictory kind of things. Um, uh, and this wasn't done, you know, was wasn't done for politics. It was done for national security. It was we had no choice, blah, 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 blah. You know, he originally wanted to make the withdrawal date 9-11. And as I've said a, a zillion times here, that was singularly the worst conceivable date you could pick. I mean, imagine if the images, the worst images that we saw on August 27 or whatever they were, were taking place today and tomorrow in afghanistan what an unbelievable propaganda disaster that would be and the only reason i bring well i bring it up for two reasons one because it, it displays remarkably poor judgment on the merits but two it it i think it it reveals how much a very wrong theory of politics played into biden's decision in the first place he thought that would be like a winning thing to do and, um, I sometimes think, you know, I mean, I talk about this a lot on the, on here about how, you know, politicians get captured by their audiences. Um, I'm really beginning to think that, that Biden suffers from a real Pauline Kale problem. Now I know that Pauline Kale didn't in fact say, I don't know anybody who voted for Nixon or whatever. That was a paraphrase. And, but the, 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 the print a legend version of it is, you know, she was like, I don't understand how Nixon could have won. I don't know anybody who voted for Nixon. Um, it's sort of like my thing I've talked about a lot, um, how Nixon supposedly once was asked if he believed in overpopulation or the population bomb um, when he was president. And he said, of course, I believe, you know, overpopulation is a problem. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. Um, maybe that's because he's the president of the United States. I increasingly think that like Biden is has not really been exposed to people who he, at least he respects or listens to who, um, explain to him or reveal to him that, uh, the electorate is very different than what he thinks it is. I think he's locked into, I don't know if it's a nostalgic version or if it's just sort of, he's in a bubble, but the way he talks about things a lot, it, 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 really feels like he doesn't really understand how to read the room. Um, and that he has spent so long trying to be a, a crowd pleaser within the 
the confines of the Democratic Party that he no longer really has a great grasp about how to speak beyond that. I mean, he knows how to sound like a folksy guy, a Joe Lunchbucket guy, in the context of being a partisan Democrat. I don't think he really gets, you know, both on policy and on the politics and the rhetoric, how to talk like a um, a Joe Lunchbox guy, regardless of politics. And, and I think it, it steers him wrong a lot. You know, I mean, he's, he's a centrist. He's always been a centrist within the, the, the polls of the democratic party, not within the polls of American politics. And those are two very, very different things. And if you take all of your cues from what audiences within the rarefied world of democratic politicians and activists, um, tell you, if you, if you mistake that for the average or the median voter, you're going to make huge mistakes. And, um, it's not unique to Biden. I mean, lots of politicians make those mistakes. I think Trump made a lot of mistakes because he was listening to the feedback of not your typical Republican voter, but a certain fringy kind of Republican voter. And, um, but Biden's the guy who's president now. I guess we should talk very briefly about uh, how briefly we'll see how it goes, but about the, the mandate thing. Um, the, why I think this is a perfectly good example of how Biden is, um, how Biden's got read the room problems. I thought the, the speech that he gave yesterday, or uh, I guess this was Thursday, just in case it's confusing, um, was a mess. I, I'm not sure it's going to hurt him, but I mean, we can get to that in a second, but, uh, I, I was fairly incoherent. I think pod got it right in his New York post column, um, at least on this point, which is that, you know, he says we have to, he said, we have to protect the un, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, which kind of just as a matter of science doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I would have been with him more if he says we got to protect our healthcare system from the unvaccinated because look at this place and look at that place. It's being overwhelmed and all that. That's a, I mean, I, he, he nodded to that argument, but like, uh, that's just a much more powerful and accurate argument to me than saying that the vaccinated need to be protected from the unvaccinated. Um, the unvaccinated need to be protected from their own refusal to get vaccinated. Um, and, you know, so I, I said a while ago that I, I, I'm trying to cut down and I have been cutting down my, my Twitter usage. Um, doesn't necessarily always mean I don't keep tweeting, but it does mean I don't look at a lot of the responses to the, some of the political things. It means that I, um, you know, don't get dragged into the trollery and that kind of stuff and all the hateful, insulting stuff. Um, and so, I mean, I bring that up because one of the reasons why I'm a little reluctant to talk about this is that I was so pissed off at these jackasses yesterday on Twitter who were making the, this huge issue of the fact that David French and I hadn't tweeted about something that happened around five 30 in the afternoon yesterday. Um, and of course the reason why we hadn't tweeted was because we wouldn't want to criticize Joe Biden or because we're cucks or because we're, um, uh, you know, we can't admit that we were wrong and not voting for Trump or so, all those nonsense. And, and I, and I, and, and it's nonsense on so many friggin' levels that I, you know, I get mad at myself for letting it bother me. Um, but like, first of all, if you'd looked at my Twitter feed, I hadn't tweeted about anything else either. Um, because I hadn't been on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I was texting with David about it afterwards and, you know, David took Twitter off of his phone for the same reasons that I'm cutting back on Twitter. It's just like, you know, you can't have it in your head all the time. And so he doesn't have it on his phone. He's at a conference at the, you know, when all this is happening and the presumption, the, the sort of condescending arrogance and presumptuousness of people who just assume that because we are not responding on their timeline, that we are. Uh, it must be for the reasons that they want it to be. And it must be because we're afraid, you know, or that we, we, we have no good, you know, response to this, or we're terrified of criticizing Joe Biden. 
And I still get this stuff all the time about people telling me I'm, you know, you know, I, I don't criticize Joe Biden. I mean, read everything I've written about Afghanistan in the last two weeks. I mean, Jesus. Anyway, so um, I also, you know, think that the very online types who went who lost their minds in some ways last night about all of this, um, um, they have reason to be angry, I guess they have reason to be critical to be sure. Um, I think there's some overreach here. There's certainly some flip-flopping and hypocrisy on Biden's part. I mean, it wasn't long ago that he said, you know, he, he, he couldn't, couldn't and wouldn't do mandates. And while this isn't straight up a, a full on federal mandate, it's pretty damn close. And, um, some of them, I think are, some of the stuff in this thing is are total, some of the, the vaccine requirement stuff in this is totally, um, uh, defensible in my mind. Like if you're a healthcare worker, you know, in the healthcare system and it's the healthcare system that we have the most sort of national interest in right now, um, uh, it should be a requirement of the job to get vaccinated. Right. I mean, it just, I just think it should be. And I don't think that you have any legs to stand on to say you, you shouldn't. Um, uh, my suspicion is that the, the, the most controversial one, which is this business mandate thing, will probably survive um, constitutional court scrutiny, or at the very least, it'll it it will take so long for the courts to figure it out where to come down on it that it won't really matter very much. And this is something that I, I did end up tweeting about last night: is that, um, you know, the the powers that we have given—I don't want to call it the deep state, you know. But the powers we've given the administrative state, which I read a lot about in Suicide of the West, um, uh, are really outrageous. And in a lot of ways, this is very much like the, it, this feels very much like the uh, the eviction ban thing. So the reason why I think it's like um, the eviction ban thing is that the HHS or the CDC underneath the authority of the HHS Basically, there was a statute that just read the, the health secretary or the CDC director can do whatever it wants, right? It was, as my friend Charlie Cook says, it was written like it was an enabling act for a bureaucrat to uh, work independent of the color of authority and democratic legitimacy to basically behave in a monarchical way. And good for the court, I think, for saying, hey, look, I mean, I know the, the statute says that, but nah. We're not going that way. Um, well, the OSHA statutes, occupational safety and health administration statutes that Biden is relying on to do a lot of this stuff are also like really, really broad. And, you know, a couple of lawyers that I've heard from think that they're written in ways that um, can withstand uh judicial scrutiny more than the, the, the CDC one did. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, 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 I'm willing to wait and see, but my, my suspicion is, is that some of this stuff is going to get brushed back certainly. And I certainly think that the stuff that Biden said about rolling over governors or all that kind of stuff is just outrageous. It's, ir it's irresponsible it's contemptuous of the system of government that we have, and people have every right to getting pissed off about it. But the main reason that I'm reluctant to get into a lot of this is that isn't because I'm annoyed at Kyle Kashev and some jackasses on Twitter, and it's not because I think some of this stuff is is actually more constitutional and more defensible legally than um, the people f getting their dresses over their heads about this think it is. The main reason why. Um, I'm reluctant to, to take this bait is because I think it's bait. I think it's bait that, you know, the Biden administration has made a political calculation here that it is better for them to troll conservatives, troll, um, anti-vaxxers, uh, troll Fox news and say all sorts of things in ways that, and do all sorts of things that will create this you know, wave of populist outrage and, um, um, and they think that and, and for the simple reason that they think that it's going to change the, the conversation from Afghanistan. And 
it's the kind of conversation that I think they probably have polling that says this is going to work for them among the, among the voters that they care about, you know, the polling on among vaccinated people about how much patience was left for unvaccinated people had already been changing. Um, and I think that they're looking at this and saying, this is, this is an opportunity for us. And, um, the, the narrative of about Afghanistan was a bad narrative for us. And this is a better narrative for us. And the more outrage they get at us for trying to get people vaccinated, the more we can win back the suburban voter types, the more we can get because of negative polarization, our own base to rally around us. Um, and so, I mean, I honestly do think, I mean, look, I, I'm sure there are people in the administration who believe this is all the right thing to do. I'm sure Biden, to some extent, believes this is the right thing to do. But often what politicians do, particularly Clintonian politicians, and Bill and, and Joe Biden is nothing if not Clintonian in the way he views politics, um, they often give themselves the permission to do politically advantageous things while telling themselves that this is the best course of action. Like I remember, um, you know, when, uh, the, remember the thing, well, if you're too young to remember nine 11, you probably don't remember this, but there was this big hullabaloo about how Clinton bombed an aspirin factory in like 98 amidst all the scandal stuff. Um, and a lot of people got really, really, really angry. I remember Christopher Hitchens, you know, went berserk about all of it. Um, uh, I remember talking to Rich at the time and we sort of like kind of came to the conclusion that he did the right thing for the wrong reasons. Um, that this was a politically advantageous thing for him to do, a sort of wag the dog thing to do. Um, but he was also justified in doing it. And uh, I think that there's a lot of that going through Biden and the White House's head about a lot of this, this mandate and vaccine stuff. Um, but I would bet if they didn't think the politics are on their side, they wouldn't have done it this way. And, um, the willingness of a lot of people to be baited into the conversation that politicians want to have, um, is something that I'm just personally really trying to, um, uh, tamp down in me. Uh, the, the Trumpers were brilliant at it. Trump did it all, you know, Trump, whenever there was things going bad for him, he would troll the left and all of a sudden they would all stop talking about this thing and they start talking about that thing. Um, and you know, the idea that because Biden comes across as this more avuncular, you know, uh, Bartles and James ad kind of old man doesn't mean that he doesn't do the same kind of stuff. And, um, I think it's kind of ironic that a lot of the people who were freaking out about how we're in a dictatorship now and that, um, you know, we shouldn't, we should, we should defy vaccine mandates at every turn to, you know, stick it to the man and all this kind of stuff. They're actually playing the role that Joe Biden wants them to play. Um, uh, at least if my cynical theory of Joe Biden is correct. And I think that's just something that I, you know, uh, I, I particularly resent being, well, let me put it this way. I resent when politicians try to bait me into taking my eye off the ball. I really resent it when a bunch of immature people take their eye, take the bait, take their eye off the ball and then give me a hard time for not following the, the mob with them. So on the merits of all this, um, uh, you know, I made this point yesterday and I think people, and it's amazing how much it pisses people off. And I stand by it 105%, 107%. Um, whether you think what Biden is doing is an outrageous assault on American civil liberties and constitutional norms, or whether you think it is, um, a high-minded and noble effort to save lives and get this country past the pandemic, or whether you think where I sort of am, that it is a mix of those. It's a, it's a watered down mix of those first two things, but it's also a cynical media strategy to change the subject from Afghanistan and to change the narrative away from, you know, uh, the stuff that was pulling his poll numbers down. Um, whichever, where, how, wh how many, how much you believe in either one of those explanations or in parts of all of those explanations, the one indisputable fact is if everyone got vaccinated, this wouldn't be happening. You know, and this is the thing that kind of drives me crazy about the way we, 
you know, that people are talking about this is that it is in your interest to get vaccinated. It just is right. And I, I, I'm not going to like, you know, belabor this, you know, too long, because at this point, if you don't understand why it's in your interest to get vaccinated, unless you have some very rare, statistically extremely rare medical condition or some boutique religious objection or, uh, you know, and, and like, and I'll give you, I'll cut you some slack. If you've already had COVID and you don't think you need the, the, the inoculation, I think you're wrong on the science, but okay. That's, that's not an anti-science position. That's just a, I think a, a bad position, but if you're just refusing to get vaccinated from this disease, because the man you know, is telling you to because Joe Biden wants you to, or the libs want you to, you're behaving like an idiot. And this, the, the idea that like, look, if, if, if Joe Biden wanted every American to read some new pledge to wokeness or put a sign in their front yard, one of those in this house, we believe signs or something like that, or if he were telling everybody to put a coexist bumper sticker on their car, if he was telling people to do any of those kinds of things, um, I'd be with you. It would be outrageous, but that's not this. This country is mandated vaccinations and far more draconian things in the face of, of ep epidemics and pandemics from its founding from George Washington versus yellow fever all the way through to like child vaccinations. Um, and the idea that all of a sudden it is outrageous for the gov for the state in a liberal society to take extraordinary measures to get people vaccinated is ridiculous. And the idea that, um, that somehow it is heroic in principle to put yourself in jeopardy and people around you in jeopardy because you think that this power, which the state has always had and which conservatives used to defend. I mean, uh, someone tweeted the other day, you know, how Ben Dominic wrote this wildly pro vaccination piece of the Federalist in 2015 before, you know, the politics of it all changed. I don't know what his position on it now is. I don't really care. But my point is, is that this used to be among even very pro Trump segments of the right common sense. We used to make fun of anti-vaxxers on the left and to try and turn this into some brave hearty and kind of uh, issue of, of first principle is really kind of silly to me and it's irresponsible. And if you don't want to push, if you don't want the, you know, look, I mean, think about it this way. The founding fathers, you know, conservatives love to quote, I quote all the time, these quotes from James, from, from John Adams and George Washington about how this whole country depends on a virtuous people because without virtue, they won't hold on to democracy and liberty and all that stuff. Believe that entirely. My whole spiel about bourgeois values, believe it. The liberal and liberal arts isn't about, you know, uh, you know, uh, have, you know, teaching ideology that, you know, conscribes with the, the Michael Dukakai of the world. The liberal and liberal arts is the liberal liberalism of freedom. The idea that, you know, you need to teach people the skills and concepts and habits, intellectual habits that are required to be a defender of liberty in a free society and to be an upholder of institutions of liberty in a free society. And, um, and so I believe all that stuff about the, the, you, you need a virtuous people if you're going to have it last, if we're going to keep the Republic as Ben Franklin would say, well, look, I am hard pressed to find a definition of virtue that wouldn't include getting a harmless vaccination that can save your life, can spare the spare society great expense and maybe spare the lives of other people and get this country country's economy moving again. It is a virtue. It is a, not only is it a virtuous act, it is sort of, it is an easy virtuous act. And, um, if people behaved more virtuously all along by getting vaccinated, then Joe Biden wouldn't be mandating these things, right? It's, it's like, you know, when, when, when the population behaves irresponsibly, whether it's riots or shoplifting or whatever, eventually 
the state has to take more draconian actions than we would otherwise like. Well, if people didn't behave that way, the state wouldn't have the political or the pragmatic need or desire to do the things that we don't like. So get freaking vaccinated. Of all of the dumb things to turn into this, you know, you know, don't tread on me stuff. I mean, at least the, at least the mask thing made, I thought oh, that was silly too, but that made more sense than this. Um, and, you know, of course people think I'm, you know, I'm a cuck liberal squish loser, um, Bidenista, uh, because I'm making this point and, you know, screw them. Where else to go? Um, Oh, so I've been thinking about this a bit. I, I think I talked about this a long time ago um, on here a little bit, like right around the time that the, was it Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi Arabian journalist who worked for the Washington Post was killed. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, when I had Graham Wood on, and I really do recommend listening to that episode, um, um, you know, he had told me, um, after we stopped recording that, you know, he wanted to correct me on this joke I made about the religious police pulling him out of his hotel room. And he told me, and as I mentioned at the end, at the close of the show, uh, that the Saudi religious police aren't a thing anymore, or at least they've been told to stand down. And I didn't know that. I think that's really interesting. And it got me thinking about this, this, this point, which is that, you know, um, I know I'm supposed to be some sort of, you know, bagel snarfing warmonger um who wants to um drop bombs and you know spread democracy by dropping bombs on everybody um which is in fact not my position um and but it's 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 the caricature it's a straw man that a lot of people like to cast on me when they want me to be the when they want to pretend that they are the um the the realists the practical minded you know, kind of people. And anyway, like my view of the original neo, I mean, where to start with this? I'm going into so many different cul-de-sacs. It's part of the problem doing this thing in the morning when you're this drunk. Um, let's start this way. Uh, longtime listeners know, I think that neoconservatism was originally about, it was a, a, a philosophical orientation towards domestic politics cultural war politics, domestic politics, the limits of social science, the limits of reform, the public interest, which is the Ur uh, neocon journal, which I had lots of friends who worked for. And I used to have lunch over there all the time. And, um, uh, and, and, and one of the proudest moments of my life was when I first got to write for it. Um, cause I just love that, that, that magazine. Um, anyway, it was explicitly not about foreign policy at all. And it, and Irving Kristol, who created, you know, with Nat Laser and Daniel Bell, who created the public interest, um, he didn't create the national interest for another, I don't, I'd have to go check 10 or 20 years. Um, can't remember when the national interest started, but, uh, that was the foreign policy magazine. And, um, and so a reason I bring this up is one, it's one of my weird minor obsessions, sort of like the holodeck stuff, but, um, two, because. I think that the, the, that straw man definition of what a neocon is, um, is more flawed than even the people, um, who point out its flaws realize. Cause it, I view, and, and people argue with me about this. I think John Adler disagrees with me about this. Um, neoconservatism as a foreign policy doctrine, uh, as a foreign policy thing doesn't really start until the seventies when this sort of second wave of neocons, uh, Norman Podoritz, Gene Kirkpatrick, that crowd, the sort of commentary wing of neocons comes in and, um, and, and they were brought into neoconservatism because of anti-communism stuff as they were rebelling against Nixonian detente. They were rebelling against McGovernite isolationism. I remember McGovern runs, you know, on the promise of come home America. Um, and that neoconservatism, which did, depending on which intellectuals you're talking about, like Josh Moropchik, um, did have a export democracy component to it, to be sure. Um, 
but it was also much more level-headed and much less kind of blindly ideological than a lot of people think. And, you know, the, the, the one of the quintessential essays that sort of gets to my point here was Gene Kirkpatrick's uh, Dictatorships and Double Standards, which Ronald Reagan read, and that's why he made her um, uh, the U.S. Uh, representative to the U.N. I don't think we call it ambassador back then, but maybe we did. Um, and, um, her argument was that, and I, I think it's, it's largely unassailable is that as bad as dictators, strongmen's autocrats, right? Whatever you label, you want to put on them despots, um, as bad as they are. And some of them are really, really, really bad. Um, they are less bad for their own societies and less bad for us as a matter of real politic than um uh than totalitarian societies um you know the the most of the, most of the dictatorships that we were dealing with um the sort of right-wing dictatorships were sort of on the the franco level where they were they weren't trying to like conquer europe or the world or anything like that they wanted to protect them and their little cabal and they tended to sort of move the country pinochet like towards um you know prosperity and democracy some didn't because dictatorship is bad i'm not here to defend dictatorship i'm only here to grade these things my only point is here we grade them on a curve um and most of these right-wing dictatorships particularly the ones that agreed to some to to hold off the spread of communism as some part of like a realpolitik you know alliance with us were more in our interest having it was more in our interest to have those kinds of regimes running countries than to have communist regimes running countries. And one of the things we could do if you had, a, a I don't know, a Batista, a Pinochet, um, um, you have, you have dictators of that ilk, um, and they're reliant on you in some significant way is that you can work on them over time to transition to democracy which is what happened in South Korea. It's what happened in Chile. Um, it happened in um, lots of other places in sort of South America to one extent or another. It happened in Franco Spain. Um, and uh, not all because we twisted their arms into doing it, but we played a role in, in that. And, uh, and so the point is, is there's just, there's, there's a way to sort of score these things. Um, purely on a cost benefit analysis kind of, you know, no tears kind of thing. And, um, and the, the neocons I'm talking about, the re the real neocons, they understood this and they were talking about making hard choices, ugly choices, um, but not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I could make this point about Afghanistan, where as bad as the really crappy government that was running Afghanistan and shame on us for letting it get as crappy as it was still preferable to the Taliban. Um, but that's not the point. The point is I want to get back to is, is this thing about Saudi Arabia. Um, if you listened to, um, David Ignatius and a lot of these guys from the Washington post, and, and I want to be clear again, I totally understand why if you were at the Washington post, you would take a maximalist position about bringing uh, getting justice for one of your columnists, one of your writers, one of your team. Um, you would bang the drums about this constantly. Um, you sort of have a fiduciary obligation to do that. Um, so I get it at the same time when, uh, Khashoggi was murdered and it was outrageous in Turkey. There were a lot of people who were saying this has to be the, vi the complete end of our relationship with MBS, you know, the crown prince and, Saudi Arabia. This has to be the complete end of this alliance of convenience with Saudi Arabia. Um, we can't have anything to do with a, a regime that would do something this terrible. And um, again, kind of ironic when we're talking about how uh, the Taliban are our business-like partners now. Um, but again, put that aside. The point I want to make is, is that as, as terrible as the 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 murder of a journalist was, and, um, as much as I think we were, you know, we should have 
smacked around the Saudi regime probably more aggressively than we did. Um, the old sort of understanding of sort of neoconservative foreign policy would look at this with a much more nuanced eye. If it is in fact true, and I believe Graham would entirely, that that Saudi Arabia is um, reforming rapidly culturally because of, of, of the programs and policies being pursued um, by MBS, um, that's a big, big deal. And it's better for the West. It's better for America um, than like what the alternative would have been if we somehow, you know, did something that delegitimized M MBS to the point where he was replaced by some more traditional Saudi hardliner. Um, and the idea that, you know, Ataturk, I keep meaning to like go find a history about, you know, Ataturk and because he's a fascinating figure, but, you know, he's this great reformer in, in Turkey. He, you know, um, uh, banned all sorts of Muslim, uh, public Muslim things like turbans. And, and I think he got rid of the, he, I can't remember if he got rid of the Fez or if the, anyway, there's some, there's a thing about the Fez where it may have been like the replacement for, I, I gotta look it up. I don't want to get it wrong. Regardless, he was, he wanted Turkey to become secularized and, and Western oriented. And he did a lot of draconian things that, you know, would be totally unacceptable in a, in a democracy like the United States of America. But for Turkey, you know, at least the conve the conventional wisdom has always been that he helped modernize in a positive way. Um, Turkey, I don't know this, but I kind of suspect that he did some terrible things in the process. Um, if we want to sort of stipulate for argument's sake that the overall modernization of Turkey was a good thing for the West and good thing for Turkey, saying we should have sort of rejected any effort to help with that process because he was doing bad things to get it done, breaking a few eggs to get it done, um, is not sort of more realistic foreign policy. Um, you know, my dad always used to defend the Shah of Iran, not to say that he didn't think he was a murderer and, and all that kind of stuff. But one of the reasons why we got the Iranian revolution and the, 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 the mullahs and Khomeini and all of that was the Ayatollahs, I should say, um, was that he was a reformer. You know, he gave women, um, all sorts of new rights, let them go to schools, let them wear, you know, skirts and all these kinds of things. And it, it, it aroused, um, a vicious cultural backlash. And so maybe you can criticize him for going too far, too fast with that stuff. But that was never the sort of the left's criticism of the Shah of Iran. The left's criticism of the Shah of Iran was that he was a, an evil dictator, um, and pawn of U S foreign policy. And, you know, maybe he was some of those things and would that he had been more effective, but, uh, you know, Iran would be in a better place today and forget, you know, even if you don't care about the Iranian people, I do, but okay, let's not care about the Iranian people. We would be in a better place today vis-a-vis -vis Iran if the Shah had not been deposed, I think that's fair to say, given how many Americans, the Iranians have killed directly or by proxy over the last 40 years, um, given how they are like the chief sponsors of terror, given how they are pursuing a nuclear weapon. Um, it would have been better if we'd had some sort of vaguely democratic, corrupt, um, uh, you know, uh, quasi authoritarian regime in Iran that did our bidding rather than one that called us the great Satan. And, um, and I think that this kind of thinking, you're not allowed to talk about this in public, um, in, in a lot of circles because, you know, and this, this brings me back to the Afghanistan stuff. I mean, I talked about this with Will Salatan. I wrote about this in the G file thing. Um, I get so annoyed when people talk about how this was a pragmatic, realistic, hard-headed kind of thing to do. And then I see, you know, Jen Psaki and the State Department getting really worked up about how there aren't more women in the Taliban's cabinet. And I don't, I mean, I, I like, I don't get it. Like, 
making again I, I wasn't for staying in afghanistan for the nation building and to promote democracy and all that kind of stuff but i did believe that if we're going to be there we might as well like put in a good word for democracy and do what we can where we can for the sake of democracy but let me just say i think democracy you know uh rule of law you know constitutionalism uh anti you know i'm not i don't think afghanistan can ever be a truly secular society but religious tolerance and all these kinds of things these strike me as more important values vis-a-vis -vis our own national interests than gender inclusivity like you know like so like the fbi's got a 10 10 million dollar bounty on Akani's head right because he murders people he's murdered americans he's murdered our allies he's a bad dude um the fbi has you know, uh, rewards for, or historically, I assume they still, there's still some mafia guys left, you know, they would have rewards for, you know, the, the heads of mafia crime families because the heads of mafia crime families are responsible for murder and extortion and all sorts of crimes. Would we care any less about punishing criminals for sanctioning murder if instead of uh male crime bosses they were all female if that scene in the godfather where you have you know representatives from all of the families meeting in the commission to talk about how they're going to handle the drug trade and all that kind of stuff if if they had made a sort of like what they did with ghostbusters if they remade it as an all-female mob would it change the important things about why we don't, why, why, why we, why we prosecute and, uh, you know, organize crime. Um, the idea that somehow because the Taliban is all male, that should occupy a lot of our time and energy instead of like the fact that they're literally a terrorist organization that has taken over a government and now has, you know, the fourth largest helicopter fleet military helicopter fleet in the world that has all of these weapons and vehicles and planes. Um, like that just strikes me as a more important thing to be concerned about than the lack of, uh, gender diversity, um, in their meetings where they're talking about who they're going to kill. Um, now I do care about like women's rights in Afghanistan and all that kind of stuff, but I've been told by, you know, all these people that these are the serious people who have, a um, a more realistic view of foreign policy. And they're the ones talking about this stuff. They're the ones voicing their concern about, you know, how they were promised that the Taliban would be more inclusive. And at times, if you listen to it, it sounds a little bit more like they're angrier about the gender stuff than they are about the terrorism stuff. I mean, you had Anthony Blinken refer to the leaders of the, this new terror state, who have a 20 year track record of being terrorists or supporters or allies of terrorists, um, uh, saying that many of them have challenging records. Well, that's, you know, what, what, what adjective are you supposed to use for murderers who celebrate nine 11, um, who are in league with Al Qaeda um, you know, what, what, what more do they have to do to rate a, a harsher term than challenging, but heaven forbid, you know, there aren't more women, uh, in the room when they're plotting the next attack on the United States of America, or when they're figuring out how they're going to kill religious and ethnic minorities, you know, because you really need women's input when you're committing, you know, small scale genocide. I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's vital. I, it, it, it's so confusing to me. All right. Um, I know I'm kind of ranty. Um, uh, what? Oh, so people keep asking me. Yeah. So Pippa, our English Springer Spaniel, she is not in a great way. Um, her paw, it's not her paw, it's her wrist or is in bad shape. And the, the doctors told us it was going to get worse, but surgery wasn't quite ready but i think we're there now she's like she just won't go on long walks right now because it hurts too much 
And um, there's just nothing more pathetic than Pippa looking up at you with holding up her hurt paw. And um, so it looks like, so the surgery is basically where they, like, like they fuse the joint um, and it'll put a hitch in her step, but she already has a hitch in her step, but at least the new hitch in her step won't um, be from pain. It'll just be because there's not flex in that joint anymore. Really hate doing it. Really hate spending the money. Um, you know, I spent so much money on Cosmos health issues. Um, you know, he was, I always used to joke that he was about two surgeries shy of being fully bionic. And then there was Zoe's episode with Parvo where she was in the ICU unit as a puppy for, you know, 10 days. So I just, I hate the whole thing about surgeries and vets and vet bills. I mean, I feel like I've built a wing on this, the vet we have here. And then there's just like the really frustrating part was that we finally um psychologically pulled the trigger and said, okay, let's get her the surgery. And our vets where we've had these surgeries in the past and another vet where we had surgeries for Cosmo, um, they are so backed up that they can't even talk about putting us on the calendar until like mid October, which just is just a huge pain, you know, because like Zoe still needs full walks and Pippa would like to do full walks, but she can't. So it's sort of sad and it bums me out. Um, and, uh, on the plus side, I want to give a shout out to trip Whitbeck. I don't know if he is a listener to the remnant and I don't know if that's his real name, but that's his name and his Twitter handle. Um, uh, he had this really funny, uh, tweet, which my wife really, really loved. Um, where he said, I want, you know, my Twitter handles at Jonah dispatch, but he says, I want, uh, Jonah dispatch to do a photo series, John, Paul, George, and Dingo in which Zoe is inserted into various Beatles situations, a hashtag team Aru. Um, and people started already generating some pictures. This is fantastic. Po uh, you know, the, is that fantastic iconic picture that has the four of them when they were young in black turtlenecks mop top. And it's got, you know, it's got Paul, John, George, and then this black and white picture of Zoe in it. And I think I'm going to try and get that blown up and made a poster. I know there are rights problems, but as long as I don't sell it, I think I'm okay. Um, but if, uh, if, if listeners want to, who are good at Photoshop and want to have fun with it, um, I think I'll give like the winning, I'll give the best one according to our, our panel of judges. Um, I don't know. We'll give them, uh, signed copies of all three of my books. Um, and I don't know, maybe I can convince the suits, um, about a, a dispatch subscription or something. But anyway, if people want to send one, I just th I think it's great. Um, we'll put the, we'll put one of them in the show notes. Um, and, um, other than that, uh, we are desperately trying to figure out what to do. You know, I told you guys before that we put off celebrating our 20 year, um, wedding anniversary because everything was geared towards getting our daughter to college and getting her set up and, um, really couldn't figure. And also COVID was made travel kind of weird. Um, and so now we're like interested in doing something and we're just trying to figure out where to go and what to do. And we just haven't figured it out yet. And then the COVID stuff is still a problem and weather is starting to change lots of places that we might like to go. Um, but, uh, we're still hoping to do something fun and weird in October. If there are events that are out there that people know about, um, you know, particularly like say in Europe or somewhere out of the, out of the country, um, that are worth like hanging, a sort of, a travel itinerary around, uh, shoot me an email, let me know. Um, we've been looking for a bunch. There is this white truffle thing in Italy, which we're intrigued by, um, and, um, you know, got to figure out how to pay for some of this stuff, but we'll figure that out. And, um, uh, other than that, I'm trying to think, I felt like there was something else I was supposed to talk to you guys about. I even, maybe did I make a note? No, I didn't. All right. So with that, uh, um, my heartfelt thanks to everybody who's served in the last 20 years in the war on terror and all of its various fronts. Uh, my 
heartfelt condolences to anybody who lost their life or suffered hardships. Um, my thanks to all the first responders and all of those people. Um, and, uh, here's hoping that, you know, despite the way it seems these days that should we have another nine 11 type thing other than the pandemic, um, that our response will be as good as it was in the early days of after nine 11, um, and not deteriorate as badly as it did as we moved away from nine 11. And uh, with that, I guess I'll just see you next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.